this evening, actually I want to talk uh, a little about meditation and daily life, but before that, I thought possibly I could share with you my take on karma. Why not? <laughs> so, uh, kind of talk, because I want to talk more about the other subject. Uh, when I was in Korea, every day I was uh, swimming in the sea of karma. <laughs> karma as rebirth. Every day it was either me, uh, I was doing this, that, and other, I look like this, and it's another because of past life. I mean, I was swimming in it. But one thing which really struck me was my friend, Bolichim. I stayed with her in our apartment, and she's one of the most kind and generous person I know, and also very bright and very lively woman. And every day, I would hear about her life and karma. And I had two very, it was interesting for me in my heart, every time I talked with her, I had two very opposite feelings in my heart at the same moment. Because what she would tell me is all the difficulties she had in her life and how she, was, she had been able to live through them because of karma as rebirth, thinking this is from a past life and this life, well, I must you know, bear with it, I must be patient, I must work with it because uh, my husband was this and that in my past life or whatever. And every day I heard that. And in my heart I felt two different things. One was that I admire her for her patience, for her endurance, to in a way use this idea, this metaphysic idea, metaphysical idea of karma as rebirth in a way that he would help her to be more patient, to be more enduring in a situation. And I really admire that quality. And I know that a lot of Buddhists will use karma in this way. And it will give them strength and patience and endurance. And will help them to grow through great difficulties. At the same time, on the other side of my heart, there was my <coughs> socialist upbringing, which kind of... Oh, this is opium for the people, <laughs> you know, this is too passive, you know, you're not going to change your life that way, you're going to bear with it, but anyway, but I could, actually what was for me interesting is that I could have the two feeling together, and I could see, I could go one way or I could go the other, but I never said anything, I just listened, because that was a view of, of her world, that was the way she dealt with her life. And I did not want to kind of question it. I mean, this was her life, and I was just there to listen to it. But that was, that struck me very much. So personally, I find very useful the idea of uh, karma as action, as cause and effect. Because <coughs> that myself, I can very much experience in my life, I can experience that there are certain causes which will give certain effects, there are certain conditions which will have certain uh, effect on myself, 
And part of my practice in daily life for me is to look at that. I don't call it karma, but I call it uh, causes and conditions, causes and results, causes and effects. And that I'm very interested in, to see what, what was I thinking about, what, what was going on, what did I grasp at that then? Now I am feeling this or that, this person now is feeling this or whatever it is. At that level, I personally find it very useful and use it a lot. At the level, at the level of rebirth, I am totally agnostic. I do not know what's going to happen after death. And if I can be a little erratic here, I do not care. Possibly closer to it, I might start to care. I have no idea. For me, it's a bit like a false belief. Who knows? Possibly, but what to me is important is very much what do I do in this moment? How can I live the best my life in this moment? How can I fulfill my potential the best I can in this moment? To me, that's what really matters to me. But to finish with, to confuse you a little more, I will give you, and this is my little study hack here, that actually karma is problematic in terms of Buddhism because the Buddha in different places says different things and quite opposed actually. So I will just share with you three places which come from three different suttas, so the early Pali text. And in one of them, this is in a Kalama Sutta, he proposed four axioms for us, in a way, letting go of greed, hatred and delusion, and living a mindful, uh, good life, in a way. And that's what he said. If there is another world, meaning if there is rebirth, if good and bad deeds bear fruit and yield results, then if I lead a good life, then I am going to go to a good destination in the heavenly world. So, my future is guaranteed. If there is no other world, there is no cause and effect, here, now, I live happily, free from hatred, and that's what, so, so, so in a way, in a way, here he's saying, if there is no rebirth, if there is no cause and effect, here I live happily because I am free from hatred anyway. Then he says, suppose evil before evil doers. Because I do not intend evil, then I will not be affected, I will not get suffering, because I do not cause evil. However, last one, suppose no there is no cause and effect, then right here I am purified in any case. And I personally I like this, it's kind of the Buddha saying, well, you could view it this way, you could view it that way, but still, this would lead you to do the same thing, which is to dissolve anger, hatred, and greed, and delusion, which is, I think, very much his main point. However, in another sutta, which is called the Mahakama Dibanga Sutta, 
He says, one will experience the result of good or evil action here and now, or in the next rebirth, or in a later existence. And I think this is more the traditional view. That's generally what we hear about. Then there is, that's my favorite, the Shiva Kasuta. And what does he say in the Shiva Kasuta? In the Shiva Kasuta, somebody comes to the Buddha and says, just what he says before. Say, oh yes, Buddha, everything we experience is because of past action. And the Buddha said, no, 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 you overshoot yourself. Not everything is because of past action. There are really actually eight causes for what you experience in any given moment. And you might want to know these eight causes. What are they? <laughs> Here they come. <laughs> dysfunction of flesh, dysfunction of bile, dysfunction of wind, dysfunction of all three together. Seasonal change, improper care, exertion, and ripening of former action. So, the ripening of former action, karma as cause and effect, is only one of the eight causes. Anyway, this was my little karma interlude. <laughs> so now, I want to talk more about maybe coming back to practicality, which is my specialty here, meditation and daily life. And for me, I would say a retreat, especially a retreat like we've been doing, is very much about, in a way, cultivating tools of awareness. To me, that's what we do. Not only, I mean, do we try, of course, to train, to practice, to achieve, some level of calm, of clarity. Actually, what I feel we're doing here is cultivating tools of awareness. And that's why every day I suggested something different. And some people sometimes say, but this is confusing. You know, why are we both in this object we can use in meditation? But for me, because each object is actually the possibility of being a tool of awareness, so then, then we get a kit. It's like we have a toolkit that, according to circumstances, we can use in our daily life. We don't just don't use a hammer to do everything. But we can, you know, use this, that, or another. And the first one, and the first one is, you know, with the breath. And what we can notice, I think, all of us, if you watch the breath, if you observe the breath, you become more used to be present to the breath is really very calming, very settling. You really do this for a little while, generally you feel more calm, you feel more settled. Of course, if you have a cold and you have bronchitis, then you might do something else. This is, again, according to circumstances. And what I think can be very useful is to use the breath as a tool of awareness, but also tool of resettling re-resting in the moment. Because I think what happens in our lives, generally, especially at work, is that we get a little over-excited. 
in a way. We kind of, I, often I feel we get this <gasps> gasping mind. <gasps> I have to do this, that, 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 that. I have, and we kind of get in this kind of treadmill and we have no time to breathe actually. And we get <gasps> often a little agitated, our breath gets a little short. And that's what I would suggest at that moment to start to notice that. When we <gasps> start to feel like that and turn them to stop just for two minutes. Just watch the breath for two minutes and then go back to whatever you do. You do. Then if it rises again, maybe after an hour, then again for two minutes. And if you cannot do it at your desk or wherever you are, you can always do it in the toilet, on the toilet pot. You know, you can sit there and watch the breath and then nobody will bother you there. So in a way, finding this moment, we will kind of in a way re-anchor I think we really re-anchor us in the present and then give, I think, possibly a more kind of peaceful but efficient reason to the way we are in the world. Then there is sensation. And then I think again sensation for me is, is, is very important. It's kind of very much very embodied, being very present in your body, in how it in a way, what I would say, how the thought, the feeling are embodied. And to me, this is a key to the way I go about in my life in terms of awareness, is to kind of go in the body. What, what is this thought making me feel? What is this emotion making me feel in the body? So again, it is anchored, and it's not kind of going into all kind of storyline or whatever, but going back to anchor it in the body, I think, can be very useful. Also, I think the body, the sensation, can be very useful, again, as coming back to the present. In a, the breath sometimes might not be, in a way, strong enough, might be a little too subtle. And I think if we come back to the body, to something very physical, it might help us to not be so ahead of ourselves. Often I think actually there is a body and then there is our brain floating ahead of ourselves and we're kind of dragging the rest of the being. And I think often we can feel like that at the end of the day. If we have worked all day and you go back home and actually you're not really present to your going back home. And I think, you know, if you're walking back home or if you're kind of getting out of the car, to try to be very aware of the foot, the feet on the ground, the feet on the ground, to be aware of taking the key to open the door, to be very aware of easy call, to the touch, to very much touch the uh, reality we're encountering in that moment. And I think that then, we anchor us in the moment and then whatever we think about then will become I think a little more spacious because we are not then at that moment reduced to whatever our class, our anxiety at work or whatever it could be. Then there is a tool of awareness of sound. And I think again this one can be very useful, useful in terms of opening us up. Sometimes if we feel a little kind of, you know, tight, a little kind of too interiorized, then I think to just 
open to the sound, to just sit and in a way opening ourselves to the music of the world in a light manner, to really be open and at the same time to be open to the unpredictability of it. Because I think we have expectation, we like this sound, we don't like that. Especially if we live in town, it can be sometimes very, become very sensitive. But I think if we kind of cultivate this listening, this open listening, where you don't kind of so much pick and choose, like and dislike, but you just listen without even naming the sound. You just kind of open it. And I think it kind of opens our whole being and also create, I think, a kind of a softer, in a way, way of being with ourselves. It kind of widens the field. And also it might diminish a little the idea of control, that we want to control our environment. Because I think if we want to control our environment and we can't really do that sometimes, then we, kind of, we get into kind of a big struggle, you know, with what we want and what is really happening in the world. And at that level, I think the inquiry can be very useful in terms of the sound. Sometimes we kind of, it's interesting in meditation that actually even if there is a very noisy, powerful sound, if you use inquiry, you can really go inside it and experience it very differently. I know for myself, when I was in Korea once, we started the three-month retreat, and from day one to day uh, 90 days later, a house was being built, like our house was here, we were sitting 10 hours a day, and over there, somebody was building traditional Korean style, but on in the courtyard, so it would be sewing, hammering, chiseling, you name it, it was there. And we were really frightened at the beginning, but how can we sit with all that noise? And actually the only way to sit with it was just to, to in a way, to either have it around us or to go inside it. And then it was just this kind of fluid, changing phenomenon. And I had the same experience in, um, when I was in Shindo. I don't know if you've heard of Shindo. It is amazing alternative place in Scotland, deep near, very deep in Scotland, quite wild, near Inverness. And Hindon, I presume you don't know this, is right next plus to an air military base. <laughs> from which bombers, huge bombers regularly roll overhead. So much so that when they did that, they had to stop talking. Because I mean, you could not hear anything. And in meditation, you would sit there. And then suddenly, amazing roar. And it was kind of quite wonderful, in a way, to go inside this roar. And to, in a way, feel that power. It was quite amazing. And very deep, I mean, it gives you a very different relationship to the airplane. <laughs> I mean, if you thought military athlete, then yes, kind of, you know, perversion did arise. But if you just went into the sound in that inquiry manner, it was quite an interesting experience. Then I would say, in some of the sounds, also there is what I would call the meditative art of listening. 
And to me, this is something we can do in our daily life, which is very vital. And personally, I learn a lot from that, the meditative art of listening. And the first thing is to reflect and to experience. How do I listen generally? What do I do when I listen? And generally, when we listen, we do three things. The first thing we do is we sit there, we listen to what somebody says, and we wait for them to stop so we can say something so much more interesting. (laughs) But at the same time, we have to remember this something very interesting so we don't forget it. Actually, we're doing two things, waiting for the gap and remembering what we're going to say, which means we don't really listen to the person. Or otherwise, we listen, but I would say you only listen bodily. With your mind, you're doing the shopping list, and you're not really there. And, and then they say, huh? And, you, uh, uh, um, and then you kind of ask, what do I say? What, what, you know, you, you, don't, you are not listening. And so you can't really answer that question. I mean, it's kind of really awkward. Another one, the first thing we do is that people talk, and then in a way we over attach to what they say, over grasp, and, oh, no, really? And it's kind of a little too much, actually. We're too much with them. In a way, like there, we're kind of listening too much. And, and to me, this is art of listening, is to just listen with total awareness, with no preconception, and just listen, to just be there with the person. And then when the space comes, what is interesting is often what you say will be so much more wise or compassionate than you ever thought. You will say things about things you never thought about before. Because you in that moment really responding to the moment and to the person and to the situation. So I think, to me, this is one of the great practices in daily life, in the, this art of meditative listening. And within that too, one place to really, really look at and really play with, I think, is discussion. And to notice when, when am I having what I would call a dialogue, when the dialogue turns into discussion, and when the discussion turns into an argument. And it's very interesting, when you end up with an argument, it's interesting to go back and to say, but we started innocently enough, talking, I don't know, about football, but maybe not that very. But whatever it was, it's interesting. And to me, this is what is interesting to look at. What is it? What happened? How do you go into dialogue? How do you go into argument? And often what happens, what, what, what do we do with, when we argue, is because at that moment, we totally identify with our idea. And because the person is saying no to the idea, we feel that they say no to me. And then we have to defend the idea because then you have to defend me. And, and that's very interesting at the level. Otherwise, of course, there is the idea, this is right, this is right for me, this is the only way everybody should agree. But that, I think, is a fairly kind of common symptom. 
But the idea of uh, the, the identification of the idea is interesting, I think, to look at. What am I reacting here? I mean, do they have such a crazy idea? Why am I so heated? Because sometimes you can have a very innocent conversation, and within five minutes you are in a full-blown argument. And you wonder, but why am I there? What happened there? What is it I am fighting for? What is it? What is going on? But of course, there are also some people who create argument. I would not kind of, you know, I had a friend who was like that. And for me, it was the, the greatest lesson in my life as a French person. Because French people love to argue just for the sake of it. It's fun. It's a sport. In French, this is a sport. Somebody says something, you will say the opposite. Even if you don't believe it, you will do that. <laughs> just because that's the way it is. I remember we were talking about something in Korea and there was an American friend and we were two French, me and another French monk, and suddenly the, the French, the American said, oh, you French, you always argue, and he said, we never argue. <laughs> <laughs> but there was this, uh, this uh, German monk who I think in his main way of uh, being in life and getting entertainment, I presume, was to argue. And so I would find myself, you know, just having all these arguments with him. And I would kind of feel so stupid. You know, he would come, I would offer him a cup of tea, and then at the end of it, there would be an argument. <laughs> and, so, and then I thought, wait a minute, I mean, this, you know, this is, you know, I kind of got a little tired. And I started to see, how does it work? What does it do to, in a way, to create it? Because I did not want to have one. And then once I started to notice how it worked, how he was looking for it, how he was kind of manipulating the conversation, I would not play. I would not play the argument. I would say, oh yeah, yes, yeah, it is so, it could be so, yeah. Ah, yeah, you have a point. Ah, yeah, 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 mm, yeah. <laughs> and then he started, it, it came much less. It was not funny. <laughs> I was not playful. Then there is the other tool of awareness of the question. And then the question of what is this, I think can be very useful sometimes when we feel stuck, when we feel blocked. And then you just ask, what is this? And sometimes it really opens the thing. People often experience that with the what is this, that it kind of opens the, kind of the, the, the moment very often. Also, I would say as a practice, it's really actually would lead to that suppleness that was mentioned as one of the, the factors. I think it really helps with suppleness, with flexibility, because in a way, life becomes questionable. But I mean, I know for Stephen, the way he expresses it is very philosophical. But if you look at it in a different way, is that if life becomes questionable, is that in a way, you give, I would say in practical terms, you give the benefit of the doubt. When somebody does something, how often do we give them the benefit of the doubt? When they're late, or when they make a mistake, or when they do something. Generally we think they did it because of me, there's something against me or because they don't like me enough, or because da-da-da-da. I mean, it's very interesting to see what pops up. And, but can we give the person the benefit of the doubt? 
But maybe there is a very good reason for them to do this, to be late or to say this. I mean, wh where do they come from? What is the reason for it? And to me, this is in a way, using the question really helps us there to kind of start to create more spaciousness in the way we relate to people and in the way we are with them. So there is in a way less expectation and more these kind of generous, I would say, benefits of jazz. Let's investigate here. What is the reason for this? So that there is kind of a little more kind of movement than this great fixity. Then there is a lovely kindness. And to me, I think, as I said, it is not to create a definite feeling, it is not as a prayer, but it is very much as an intention. That we have the intention to be kind, to be loving, we have a com concern for that, and we also, our heart is open. It's back to this availability. And that I think it kind of builds a certain stream within us of that. And that it also, but one has to be careful, it is not a prayer. The fact that we say, may you be happy, may you be at peace, may you be free from suffering, does not necessarily mean that the person will stop suffering. And that the meditation is not working. It is very much a concentration and an inquiry practice in a meditative way. It is not a kind of a distance prayer. But I think it can have very interesting effect. And when I was at Sindo teaching, because I used to teach there when we used to live in England, just I used to teach the, the community, people in the, who were working in the community. So we generally get 10 or 15 people, it depended. And so they live in a big community. I mean, some, I mean, there are more than 60 people in the community. It's very large, the group of people you're working with. And so was one day, uh, during the retreat, one day was dedicated to loving kindness. And in the, when you do the full-blown loving kindness, you move from the things that are alive outside to people you like, then people you feel neutral, and then people you dislike, and then you finish with may all beings. And then at the end of the retreat, somebody was saying to us, well, at the beginning, I had lots of people in the dislike category. <laughs> but by the end of the day, a lot of them have moved off to the like category. I thought it was very interesting, in a way, how just by doing it, in a way, his heart was more, in a way, generous and open. Then there is, I don't know if you notice those instructions, because they were kind of quite small. But at one point, at one morning, I suggested that you watch the object, that it be the breath, the sensation of the sound, but at the same time, that you notice what you were thinking in a light manner. I don't know if you caught on that or if anybody did it. But to me, this is actually something I find very useful to kind of notice what is it am I thinking about? Because we're thinking all the time. I mean, we know that in meditation. We think all the time. But the, the, what I find happens is that generally we think, but we do not know what we're thinking. And we are kind of only half aware of what we're really thinking. And so that's what to me is very useful to use that tool of awareness to notice, but what am I thinking now? What am I saying to myself now? What kind of language I am using? 
What is the storyline? And to really, in a way, look into what I'm thinking. And even sometimes to question, but is this true? What I'm saying to myself. Because it's interesting, I think we have the feeling it's in my brain, it's in my mind, so it's true. So it's kind of this association. But sometimes if you find, you know, if you say, I am stupid, or if you say, I'm always stupid, I mean, I would say this is not true. But if you say that to yourself, it can be very strong. You can have a very strong feeling, and it's very undermining. So in a way, too, I find that also can be a very good method. And so as there was this question about thinking, and I think actually we can uh, use the thinking in many different ways. I would say that we can do what I call meditative creative thinking. That if you have something which is really on your mind, you have some problem, you keep coming back to, even when you do a retreat, I think it's useful to do that. You, you know, you have some subject and you're really, really concerned about it and you keep thinking about it. Then what I would say is, okay, focus on it. For one sitting in the day, 30 minutes, just think about this. And that's the concentration. You don't think about anything else but this thing. But the inquiry is that you think about it differently. Because generally when we think about something, we repeat it. He said this, they said this, they did this, oh, this is difficult, how can I? And it goes round. And it's generally extremely repetitive and you don't go anywhere with it. And that's why I think meditative creative thinking is useful, is to go and say, how could I think about this? How would somebody else think about it? Could I think something I have never thought before? So in that way, using that ability we have, actually to think creatively in a meditative manner. So that's, in a way, the tools of awareness. And then, I think, in daily life, what we can, in a way, work with, meditation and daily life, is what I call creative awareness, which I mentioned a little at the beginning of the week. But to really look, to kind of, in a way, bring the creative awareness to various aspects of our life. For example, to bring creative awareness to relationships. Because often I think there is this idea that meditation is spiritual, so I means not much to do with, you know, kind of, you know, murky, complicated relationships. You know, this is kind of attachment. But I would say no. Personally, I think to be in a relationship, to have friends, to have children, I think it's wonderful. We need to be relating to people. We need to have friendship. We need to have loved ones. We need to be loved. I mean, that I think is fairly necessary for our health of being. But in a way, how are we in relationship to people? What do we bring to it? I think creative awareness can be very useful there. To say how, and to, to me, one of the main things to look at is expectation. How we often, in a way, love people for what we want them to be for us, what we expect them to be for us. And actually, they can never completely fit the bill. They can never be like we want them to be. They can be more or less, but they can never totally be. And so to me, this is in a way 
in relationships to try to see how can I deal with that person. And I would say this is the greatest gift we can give to a friend, to a child, to a partner, is that we accept them totally for what they are. We don't say, I love you, but could you improve this little bit here? And then, truly, I will love you. But in a way that you start from the point that you love this person and you accept them fully as they are. Because how does it feel when somebody says to you, I love you, but I don't like this bit or that bit. It's really very painful. I think this is the greatest thing we can do, is love somebody and say, yeah, I accept you. And then from that appreciation you can build trust, and then you can address difficulties. You know, either with something, some repetitive behavior which is creating suffering or difficulty, then you can say, hey, wait a minute, this is going on. What can we do here? How can we be with it? But it, to me, if you don't build the appreciation and the love and the trust in that way, then I think it's very difficult to have this discussion, because then both sides become very defensive. They have to protect themselves. Then there is also, I would say, creative awareness at work. And to really look, to bring creative meditative awareness to work. How do we work? And again, we, I would say we work in various different ways. We have various patterns with work. And one of them is we work, but actually we are ahead. We already finished. So as we work, we already at the end of it. So we're not present to it. And often it's not very satisfactory. And we always feel right. Because we, you know, we're continuously ahead of ourselves. Or we work, and we're very distracted. We're kind of doing the work, but it's very mechanical. And again, it is not very satisfying. So in a way to kind of see how, and to me this is in a way the challenge for meditator, Buddhist meditator, awareness meditator. Can they be uh, present to their work? Can they bring in their creative awareness and still be efficient? Because often in awareness practice there is this idea if I want to do meditation and work, I will go much more slowly. Then you see them, you know, kind of, you know, going like this. And true, you can practice that way, but it's not very efficient worthwhile. And to me this is in a way the challenge. How can you be very present to it and at the same time still be efficient? Another thing we have in water is what I would call the measuring mind and measuring the worth of the worth. And that's what I, I, I experienced when I, uh, came, I stopped being a nun and I came back to uh, Europe and I came to live in England with Stephen. And the only thing I could do, age uh, 33, was house cleaning. And I've never been very fond of house cleaning anyway. That was not my forte in my youth. But that's the only thing I could do. And it was interesting for me that sinking feeling. Ooh, I used to be, you know, a nun. I used to be respected. And now ooh. And it was very interesting that feeling, how we measure what is the world. And also 
how people view it. That's something how more worth it because you know it's into computer or you're doing legal work and if your house cleaner then really, you know. But actually once I could go over this little my ego thinking, actually it was great. Doing the house cleaning was I brought my Zen training to it and it was very valuable and I tried to clean those bathrooms as best as I could and in a manner which would not hurt my back and it was a great practice and it was very useful. And so I think, you know, it took again look at how we might diminish or undermine ourselves in the world by that, you know, a misery mind. And last I would say, in terms of meditation and daily life, to also think, as Stephen, it was briefly mentioned this morning, about creativity. To me, this is a very important part, actually, of the meditative part. That actually, to, to me, I would say meditation really helps us to become more in tune with our own creativity in whatever way it is expressed. And so, in a way, I think that but it has to be expressed, it has to be lived out. And I remember once I was in England and I was feeling a little kind of tight. I was feeling a little, hmm, something is missing here. I'm missing something, something. And I felt creativity was missing. And so I thought, what can I do which is creative? And I'm no poet, no painter. So I thought, maybe woodwork. I could go and do wood carving. So off I went to do wood carving. And there was a course starting. And by the end of the first day, I thought, maybe this is not such a good idea. Because I was going <laughs> everywhere. And then slowly I learned to use my body in the right way for that creative activity. And I had great pleasure for these six weeks to kind of, you know, play with the wood and da da da. And at the end, I think, oh yes, that's it. I mean, I did not become a great wood carver, but it really showed me that at times, really, I had to find some way, in very physical terms, to express my creativity. And so I think, to really remember that too, that part of the meditative process is also this creative process, which might be in art, or in gardening, or in cooking, or whatever, but something where you create something out of your, in a way, creative potential. I think this is also very much part of that. And I think I will finish here. And Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.